If we're lucky, we have great teachers not just in school when we're young, but throughout our lives, people who open our minds and get us to think. In that sense, Majora Carter is a teacher, one of my teachers. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The doubts, the obstacles overcome, the early years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Majora Carter speaks to audiences around the country. She's won numerous awards and honors, including the MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Award. I first met Majora in 2006 for a profile for New York One, New York's 24-hour cable news channel. She grew up in the South Bronx in New York, at a time when the South Bronx was the national symbol for urban blight. At the time of our first interview, Majora was running the nonprofit she'd created, Sustainable South Bronx. I think I understood the concept of environmental racism before I met Majora, but after listening to her, I really understood it. And her mantra that the darker and poorer you are in America, the more likely you will live in a neighborhood with industry that is bad for your health. She eventually switched to the private sector and now bills herself as a real estate developer and urban revitalization strategy consultant. She describes it as community revitalization through talent retaining community development strategies. It looks like we're working to create developments and and other projects and also even create a new narrative about the way that communities, what we call low status communities like the South Bronx, you know, which are the places that have more health, lower health outcomes, lower educational attainment, higher rates of poverty, higher rates of incarceration. And, and I think even most importantly, a lack of hope in people's future in communities where they're from, whether they're inner cities or Native American reservations, um, poor white towns, you know, where industries come and gone. Um, you know, there's just an assumption that um, inequality exists and persists in those areas. And that's why people tend to feel like they need to leave them in order to live in, in a better neighborhood. And our work is really all about how do we create the kind of lifestyle infrastructure that makes people feel like their communities are worth living in. And so that could be anything from cafes to, to coffee shops, you know, to, uh, to, to bars, to, afford, to housing that's affordable to a range of incomes uh, that really does speak to the economic diversity in, in low status communities. And from what I recall, when I first interviewed you in 2006, that transition of oh, I need to leave here versus, no, I'm going to stay here and build here. That's a transition that you went through personally, correct? Yes, very, very much so. Um, I grew up in the 70s, early 1970s um, in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. And, um, you know, and that's when this area was considered literally like the national poster child for urban blight. I mean, it was just a campaign stop. Um, I remember when Jimmy Carter came to visit. Um, I remember when presidents, lots of them would come to say like, this is what's wrong with America and I'm gonna fix it. And, you know, there was, we lost about 60% of the the population during that time period because 
the, because of the financial uh, disinvestment and redlining, you know, and last but definitely not least, the arson and, um, and other fires that occurred here um, that just ravaged the community um, and the housing stock that we had. Wasn't there one year, I understand, where like the buildings on two buildings on your block at both ends of the block burned down within one year? Yeah, that's when I knew um, there that something was up. I mean, I was about seven. Yeah, I was going turning eight that that the end of the year. And at the beginning of the of the year of the summer, two yeah, two buildings at either end of the block burned down. And I watched both of them. Um, and which meant that the day before, you know, people that I knew and loved and grew up with um, were just gone the next day because their apartments were destroyed. Um, and then at the end of the year, my brother was also gone because he was murdered. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the many victims of some of the, the crime sprees and gang violence that happened, you know, in the neighborhood at the time. And I recall you telling me my brother who survived Vietnam, but not mm -hmm. the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, which is super ironic at the time. I mean, I think even more so. Um, you know, for me and for many of my neighbors, because, you know, it wasn't a, a pretty place and, and it was very hard at times, but it was also still a place where people really did stick together and love each other. And, and so despite all the craziness that was going on, like I did feel like I was loved, you know, when my brother was, was killed or um, you know, other folks that we knew also may have suffered uh, similar fates or something awful would happen. There was always like a community that was around to support and love them. And yeah, I've never in a crazy way, like I think there was always something about the the stickiness within a community. And it was always about the people that were there. It was never about like just only the environment that was around them, but it was, but I also knew that the environment absolutely made people feel like they could wanted to like hunker down and stay or they wanted to flee. And definitely our community was the latter. When I first met you in 2006 and first interviewed you, you were one of my teachers. And I would say my main teacher in terms of the whole issue of environmental racism mm -hmm. and borrowing your phrase, uh, the darker you are, uh, the poorer you are in this country, the greater the chance is that there'll be some kind of facility in your neighborhood that is not good for your health. Who was your teacher on oh. that subject? Oh my goodness. Um, I, I had a few, but you know, some of them were Leslie Lowe, you know, who was also a, uh, born and raised in the Bronx um, and went on, you know, to Harvard, Yale, and, you know, became an, an, a lawyer, an environmental lawyer, headed up the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance and just was one of the folks that just encouraged me early and often, um, you know, about the work that was, that they were doing and, and how I could certainly, you know, lend my voice to it. Another one is Yolanda Garcia, who um, also passed away. Um, you know, and she was, I think, the first like normal person. <laughs> not that not that Leslie wasn't normal, but she was like a community person. She was a, a second generation uh, Puerto Rican woman. Her family owned a, a furniture store over in the Melrose section of the South Bronx, and 
early on, um, the city was like, we're gonna do urban renewal up here, which you know, in, in some, in some uh, places it's called Negro removal because no one ever expected uh, the cities or cities around the country to ever really make good on promises of making our own neighborhoods better. And um, so they decide, Yolanda decided to stay along with many of her neighbors, the few that were left and um, worked on developing an, uh, a, you know, a, a sort of mixed income home ownership and you know, project that included home ownership, you know, as well as you know, a community development project up in her neck of the woods. Unfortunately, she did not uh, live to see the, the development done, but having her tell me that you know, I had every right to like feel and support, you know, my community, both of our, our pain, but also like what we wanted to do here was was honestly the kind of thing that still um, goes through my mind right now a lot when I think about what we do. Is there a way uh, when you're in high school at the Bronx High School of Science, um, you go off to the Bronx Science uh, and are you seeing uh, a different world in high school? And is there like a bifurcated life that you're living coming back to Hunts Point and going to Bronx Science? And how does one uh, negotiate that? Yeah. Oh, that's when the, uh, <laughs> the, the the bifurcation started to start. I mean, I'd never seen that many white people, um, you know, in, in my life up until then. Um, you know, I of course, most of my teachers were white. But we also had, you know, people of color here as well that were teaching. But there, it was just like we were definitely in the minority. You know, I knew that my neighborhood was just like considered a hot mess by most of the country, and and it definitely felt that way. You know, going to to science as well because you know folks would talk, including my teachers. Sometimes, you know, they were never mostly never directly to me, but it was just sort of like you knew where the bad neighborhoods were. And, you know, this was the kind of talk that would happen, you know, just in earshot of anybody listening. Um, and and is the advice the to you from teachers or from advisors or from guidance counselors, even with no malice of forethought, as the expression goes, hey, you know, you're very talented. If you do this, you can, is it subtle or not so subtle? You can get out of the neighborhood. Oh, it was completely not subtle. <laughs> It was just assumed like you're here at Bronx Science, and this was just it didn't matter if people were from Bronx Science or from, um, you know, even in my own neighborhood. You know, there is this idea that the talented kids, you know, especially the academically talented ones, but it was also for athletically and artistically inclined as well. It was just understood that you know you had the opportunity to grow up and get out, and you should use your big brain, brain, or use your all all those talents that you've got, and you can get out, and we're gonna be proud of you. I mean that, and it was just like, okay, great. And, um, you know, and I was just like, of course, I mean, look, after my, my brother was killed and after the, the, the burnings that I watched, I was, that's the time I was planning my escape. Like I knew I was going to Bronx science. It was like, I heard about that school and I was like, that's where I'm going to go. And I did. And then it was just like, that's going to get me into what I call the name school. And, and you, know, you just, went to one of those name schools, <laughs> Wesleyan University, a place that's I, beloved by many, and many close to me. Exactly. Um, what's, is, is there a clear <laughs> dream of what you want as you head off to college? You know, it's funny because I honestly thought I was going to go into um, theater. Like I thought I wanted to act. And uh, 
And I don't, you know, looking back on it, I wonder if it's because I just wanted to be somebody else so badly. Um, because what I discovered really quickly was that I absolutely, I was a total introvert and really did not like being in front of people at all. <laughs> I, went, I went through this whole exercise. It was really crazy. I took acting lessons, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was really insane. And then I was just like, what am I doing? Like, this is terrifying. And um, not that, you know, the rest of my life hasn't been terrifying as well. <laughs> but I was gonna say, um, uh, when you're doing TED Talks, you're in front of people. <laughs> Yeah, but that was also part of it. It was like, what am I doing here? And it did that took a lot out of me. That's all I'm going to say. And it still does. I mean, I, I do speak a lot. I lecture, um, but it's but I also feel really passionate about what I do. So, you know, my fear tends to take a back seat to the fact that I actually do have the opportunity to stand in front of people and talk about, um, you know, an approach that I think will save America. So you once told me, and under the heading of things that uh, people don't think about if they don't experience it, the notion mm -hmm. of going to college and, oh, your friends, hey, you know, maybe uh, if you're not going home for Thanksgiving, why don't you come with me and you can come to, you know, and you went through college, as you told me, uh, no, we're, we're not inviting people back to Hunts Point, correct? No, just what did not happen. I mean, I did it you know, once when I was in um, high school and I had a party at my house and folks actually came, but you know, my mother was terrified. Just like, what would anything happens, especially to the little white kids? Like, it was just like, it was fear. And, um, you know, not so much for me, but like, you know, whatever would happen with, with these folks. And, and I got it, you know, years later. And, but by high school, but by college, it was utterly cemented in my head that, you know, this was not a place to stay you know, and this is not a place to bring people back. This is the place that I will at some point leave for good. And at the risk of asking an incredibly obvious question, how painful is that? To actually have to think that, that you can't show off your home, just the home to friends of yours in this other world in Middletown, mm -hmm. Connecticut. Yeah. Or was it not so painful because you just figured it out? I'm not doing this. Well, no, it, it was definitely painful. I mean, it felt like I was, like it was embarrassing that I couldn't share, you know, things or didn't feel like I could share, whether it was, you know, members of my family or even like the cool stuff that I had <laughs> um, simply because of where it was situated. And, you know, but that's what I think is really interesting about the way, you know, people are led to believe that you know what persists in in American low status communities in, in particular that there's no value here and so I look back on that you know that it, with like a, almost a sense of shame that I felt you know about being associated you know with a place like this and you know and now I'm ashamed that I felt that way but at the same time I got to give myself a little bit of grace because you know for hundreds and hundreds of years you know we were taught to believe that there was no value you know in in our communities and thanks to structural racism to, you know, that people that look like me and it's, and by association, the places where they're from are definitely of no value. So, but knowing that has done everything to make me realize that like, nah, I, I see where that's coming from. So we can do something about it and really try to help change the narrative about what value looks like for our people in our own communities and for ourselves. When you get out of college, 
you're you're living in New York but not living at home. Are you making a go of it? Are you feeling like, yeah, I'm doing this. This is this is going to happen. Or is there a little something in the back of your head of like, at some point, I may return to where I come from? Oh, there was never any. I'm returning anywhere. <laughs> no, there was there was none of that. I went back home because my mother made the best fried chicken in the world. Um, and an, I an excellent reason to do so. Totally. Um, but um, no, it was never anything like that. The only reason why I did come back um, was because I was literally broke when I got into graduate school and I needed a cheap place to stay. And there was no place cheaper than, you know, my old bedroom at mommy and daddy's house. And, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> I was just, a, it was a, just such a horrifying time for me because I was so defeated, you know, because here I was trying to make it in the in the film industry, la la la, and then all of a sudden, you know, there I am, you know, and uh, you know, I was going to school, you know, I went to NYU, and I would leave the house super early in the morning, and then you know, come back very late at night, you know, so I wouldn't have to deal with anything around. It was like I slept here, and that was all I did. That's all I did. And how long and that did that last? Like, Oh, a couple of few years, um, you know, at least a couple of years. And, and it was only when I, um, you know, through one of the uh, actually pretty cool jobs that I had, I was working at, at, um, at this AmeriCorps program that actually got writers, um, you know, in, in um, you know, really interesting writing situations around the Bronx. And, and so I was here and I did that and, and through the cohort met this guy who was working for this arts organization and he kept talking about it. And I was like, I know anything like that existed anywhere near the Bronx. Turns out it was literally two blocks from my house. I passed it, you know, at six o'clock in the morning when I left the neighborhood, but of course it wasn't open. Um, and, and when I realized that there was this like incredible arts community that was still here or was coming back to, to do music and, and visual arts and just and put all sides um, types of performances, I was blown away. And, and so, yeah, I got to know my people that I didn't even know were here. And um, that was really what got me thinking about staying. And, and I did. Was there a conversation so was, at home, conversation at home with your family about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at things a little bit differently now. Yeah. And, uh, and by that time, my parents were okay with me staying at the house. My mother was like, oh, gosh, I can't believe, you know, I'm the youngest of 10. So they were finally empty nesters. And my parent and my mom in particular was just like, thank God. Um, whereas my dad was like, loved having people around. <laughs> so, but they were all kind of like, oh, it's okay. She's here. Um, and but how, did they re was... how did they respond to your appreciation or reappreciation, if there is such a word, of the yeah. neighborhood? Well, that they were, it was so interesting because I think they, like a lot of folks in, in our communities really didn't really see things changing or never really thought they could change, but they were at the same time, really proud that I was trying to do something, anything. And I remember my dad died um, before actually most of my projects actually came to, to fruition, but it was so interesting. He, he would say things like, um, and I told him, I was like, yeah, there's this dump that's on the Bronx River and we're working to transform it into a park. And, and he would just look at me like, uh-huh, wow. <laughs> and he's like, well, baby, if anybody could do it, it's gonna be you. And then, you know, sadly he died in January 
Um, and the, the park, the first phase of the park actually opened in April. And that was kind of really annoyingly tragic, but it's okay. If anybody can do it, it would be you. He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? Where do you think you got that notion of we're going to make a change? Is some of that either spoken or unspoken at home growing up? You know, it's, it's, oh, wow. I think it was kind of, it was unspoken, but, but spoken. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So let me explain. Um, so both my parents were from, you know, they both escaped domestic terrorism. My dad was from Georgia. My mom was from South Carolina. They both lived through Jim Crow and made it up, you know, literally alive with their lives. And, you know, a lot of some of their family members did not. Um, you know, they moved up north before the Great Migration. And um, I remember... Huh, um, one thing that, you know, it's like, I remember like, cause I wasn't particularly like politically or any active in any way, but, um, I do remember it's one point being like completely mad about something or other. And it was like racially motivated. It didn't happen to me, but it, like it was happened like, in the world. And my dad, you know, said something like, well, baby, what do you, what do you think? They're white? Like that doesn't work that way. And the, unless people are working the change stuff, then we're going to keep having that. And, and I was just like, Ugh. so again, it wasn't like go out and do something Majora. It's just like, this is the, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And this is the truth of the matter. And so, and I just, you know, think about that every now and then now, because that is what I've done. <laughs> and like the work that, I mean, I feel like this is, you know, as much of, you know, a calling or a ministry or whatever anybody wants to call it. Um, but I do feel like this is a way of truly create, helping to create the kind of change that I wanted to see, you know, in, in the world that I live in, in the world that people around me that, that I love experience. Uh, because they were part of the great migration, does that add extra pressure when you're growing up? either in high school or in college to, hey, we have, you know, basically come to this part of the country to get away from what was in the past. And this matters. Your yeah. life matters. Does it add a pressure or no? Oh, definitely. Um, like we were all expected, you know, my parents had a, the, what this uh, either sixth grade or less than that education. And, um, you know, and it's, it's funny because, you know, I was definitely the smart one um, out of all my siblings, although they'll like, well, admit that, but I was, <laughs> and, um, or am, I guess. And, uh, and so, but, but they, but for all of us, like they took education very, very seriously. Um, you know, and, and I know they both had hoped that I would want to be a, a doctor and it, and I loved science. So at one point I thought I, what I really was interested in um, being a neurosurgeon and, and I think I would have been good at it, but I just didn't 
you know, after a while I was like, I want to be an actress, but I don't know where that came from, but it did. And, uh, but I had a great time. And um, so I don't think they ever really hundred percent forgave me for not becoming a doctor, but <laughs> you know, they did <laughs> become my mother in particular was like, was because she did get to see at least a little bit of the work that I was, was attempting to do. And she was very excited by it. The expression speaking truth to power is now part mm -hmm. of the vocabulary perhaps not when you were first starting with your work with sustainable South Bronx and environmental racism. But uh, I recall the episode with Al Gore uh, <laughs> and when you're interacting with Al Gore and then lady, uh, later Chrissy Todd Whitman comes as part of the EPA to the neighborhood. And if I remember correctly, your essential attitude was like, don't make me just a symbol in your photo op. Uh, tell, can you tell me a little bit about those two episodes? Yeah, I mean, Al Gore, I've um, been invited to speak at the TED conference in 06, 05, 06. And, um, you know, it was just before The Inconvenient Truth had launched and it was real exciting. For me, I, I just thought this was like the greatest hope. It's like somebody at his levels talking about this stuff. And I really wanted, you know, and I felt everybody needed to be a part of it. And I was like, I'm already a part of it. So I'm just going to like offer, you know, my, myself and my work at, up to this in the environmental justice community, because of course we were already, I felt like we were allies. Um, I don't think he really thought of it that way. And, um, and it was clear because he basically didn't want to take a seriously or me seriously at the Ted talk. And of course, uh, and it was really humiliating <laughs> the way that he completely just uh, dismissed me um, in front of a room full of people and wouldn't even answer a question. And it was really hard. Um, but he also didn't know that I was going to be speaking on the TED stage the next day. And so I called him on it. And um, but lovingly, in a way that actually just reminded the entire audience that it was going to take everybody if we were going to have the kind of impact that um, we were to have on climate change um, and just the environmental burdens that we were placing on the world. And uh, yeah, and it was a really interesting moment in the TED universe. So, so is the notion of environmental racism and the, the fights that you uh, fought uh, during that time, is that, was that a hard sell also in the neighborhood to kind of talk to people, tell people, I mean, people knew in the neighborhood that these facilities bad for your health existed, but uh, did you have to kind of explain, look, this is exactly how it is so bad for our neighborhood? I mean, because of the, I think, historic ways that our communities operated and had been, you know, many of us, I think, just felt like, well, this is just the way it is. And they're always going to be bad. They're always going to have this stuff happen. They're always going to smell funny. Um, and, and I think there was some of that. Um, what I do think and this is where I do take great pride in, in my work. Um, part of what we did was actually, you know, not just helping people see that we needed to protest the things that we didn't like, but we also had to help manifest the kind of future that we wanted to have. And that's why I became very focused on project-based development because it was clear to me early on that people, if they didn't see change, they wouldn't believe that anything was going to happen. And that's why it was, that's what I did. And that's all that I do now as well, because people need to see and feel it. They need to know that there is, that there is a way out, like not out of like the community, but a way, but something could happen in their neighborhood. That's good. That could include them right where they are. 
Otherwise they won't believe it. And um, so that's why I'm like, yeah, I'm transforming a dump into a park because, you know, otherwise folks will be like, that can never happen here because it's never happened before. You know, that's why we work to create the first uh, social gathering place that wasn't the inside of a community center that no, most people don't go to, or um, the health, uh, a health clinic waiting room, which has like most of the, the, the social space literally on our commercial corridor. Um, so making like the first cafe, you know, that's a nice place you can get, you know, great coffee, now wine or beer, um, you know, in the neighborhood was like, huh, wait, we can have that stuff in our own neighborhood. Yeah, and, and it could we could celebrate our culture. That's, that's why we started the Boogie Down Grind Cafe, um, you know, as a way to be that kind of social third space where you build community in a place that makes you feel good about being in it. Did you, that notion of dealing with people who are like, hey, look, this is how it's always been. It's always going to be like this. And having to deal with that kind of doubt and pessimism, did you yourself have to work through that, at least maybe early on, uh, before the first couple of projects came to fruition? You know, it, I don't know what it was about me, but once like I had this epiphany that like, oh, like our communities are being treated like we're garbage because we happen to be a poor community of color. Something clicked in my head. And at that point, and, and we were also politically vulnerable. And it was just like, frankly, between the nonprofit industrial complex and the political powers, it was just like, yeah, this is how these neighborhoods work. And I was just like, <laughs> I, I still look back on, on some of the things that I would say and do and just the confidence that I had. I could not believe that it was just sort of like, oh, you just wait. You just wait, like this is gonna happen. And and I'm still kind of like that, even though this, the stakes are obviously higher. I'm talking about, you know, multi-million gajillion dollar projects that I really believe need to happen because they show that our communities need to be developed in ways that are worthy of hundreds of millions of dollars of projects that include, um, you know, mixed income housing and mixed use commercial development and opportunities for home ownership and business development for local people. Like, yeah, that's the scale that I'm going at right now. I mean, I feel like as much as I love the park, those were just training wheels for where we need to go. And how about the notion, it seems like it's a transition, and please correct me if I'm wrong, from focusing on environmental racism to broadening the scope. Uh, is it indeed that the case, what's transpired, say, over the last five or 10 years? And is there a moment when you're early on with Sustainable South Bronx and just doing environmental racism work where you think, no, oh, it's a bigger story than that? I mean, even when I was really focused on the environmental injustices that we were dealing with, it was almost always like from the, from the earliest days, you know, focused on like, how do we create, because knowing that the environmental injustices that we were dealing with absolutely went hand in hand with the economic abuses that our community um, experienced, you know, so whether it later on, I learned about things like redlining and financial disinvestment, but it was also about the kinds of, of businesses and industries that were allowed to persist in these communities, 
And, but again, that was economic development. It's like, who's getting employed? Who's not getting employed? Who's making the money? So I've always been about economic development, always, like from the get-go, and um, realized that there were even opportunities within that for people in our own community to thrive. That's why I started one of the country's um, you know, first and still most successful green college job training and placement systems. Because I'm like, I want people in our community to have a personal, you know, not just in love with the environment, but also a financial stake in seeing how the environment could work for them mm -hmm. and in being a part of literally the change that we wanted to see around environmental um, development. I remember you took me up on top of your building once to show me actually the Cross Bronx Expressway. Mm -hmm. For those people who don't live in New York, one of the worst highways in, in a numerous uh, amount of ways to drive on, to... And, and also the Bruckner Expressway and how these highways that were built for obviously for cars destroyed neighborhoods in the right. Bronx. Right. And again, is that something that uh, you kind of learn about just growing up in the neighborhood, hearing about it? Or is there a, a eureka moment of, oh, my gosh, there it actually is. It physically shows how it's cutting off the neighborhood. It's, it's very interesting because I had zero, it, you know, I grew up here and they were there. It wasn't until I started doing this work, um, that's when I realized that, oh, there was like a whole legacy, you know, of this really bad community development that happened in American low status communities. And then when you added, you know, um, race to it, like those were the places where the highways were, were built, you know, to, to, in the name of progress. Um, and so like my, what makes me super happy now is that the park, you know, that we transformed into a dump was actually with a dead end street that was supposed to be the beginning of another expressway to go over the Bronx River. It never happened. So nothing makes me happier to know that we are literally every time somebody like plays, they are dancing on the grave of Robert Moses, um, you know, who's the master builder here. And that, oh, I can't tell you how excited that makes me. Is there a way you can uh, reflect on what those early years, uh, both growing up in the neighborhood, at college, and those early years back in the neighborhood, how those years affect the work that you do now? Oh, it means everything because I can't, you know, I have this amazing opportunity, um, you know, to sort of see how the work that we've done is ex uh, experienced. And, and also I get to sort of see it play out in real time and, and really see why, and in particular, why folks who wanted to, you know, wanted to measure sex success by how far they got away, how far they get away from it, or feel as though that there's more, you know, opportunity outside of our communities. And it gives me a chance to, to recognize that there are things that we can be doing, you know, to develop more of a sense that community development in low status communities can be inclusive um, and fortifying of people within our neighborhoods that allow us to um, to grow, to actually be able to feel like we can both reinvest in and deliberate and deliberately benefit from the the you know the fruits of our own labor in our community. That we should be able to look around and recognize that there's like beautiful things here that we help build, we invested in, that we're supporting, that we are you know helping to to fulfill. And um, that's what's exciting about it. Yeah, Last but yes, thing. absolutely. Can we, we can all do better wherever we are. And here is no exception. Last thing, uh, you've been at this for a while. 
Are you starting to see young Majora Carters along the way? It's so cool, but yes. <laughs> um, and I can't wait for there to be a whole lot more because I'm getting tired. Um, and, you know, and, and the, the beautiful thing about doing this work is that you by because it, it sort of sucks sometimes to be like the first one in because people are just like, oh, my God, like we don't know what it is like we can dismiss you. But and so, but I feel like the iterations of the, the what I started are just going to get better and better and better, you know, because that people are learning from my mistakes um, or even the great things that we did. And it's and so I it makes me feel very, very hopeful about the future and the fact that, you know, I do hope um, that and pray a lot that um, that the kind of problems that that I've certainly experienced, you know, being a black female developer are the kind of things that will lessen over the years and will actually make it so that people, you know, who look like me or different shades of me, um, will have an easier time of helping to create, reclaim their own communities and build the kind of beauty and value that we all need. I'm gonna come up to the cafe. How's the coffee? Oh, it's really good. It really, really is. And I'm so excited. And you know where else you gotta come up to. We're, re we're um, redeveloping this beautiful historic rail station called Bronx, we call it Bronxlandia. And, uh, but it was the old Hunts Point rail station that was on the, the New York, New Haven line designed by America's first star architect, you know, star architect before there was Gary, there was Cass Gilbert. And um, it's so amazing. And so we're turning it into an event hall. And, and it's literally this reason why my family's in this neighborhood, because my dad was a Pullman porter. And um, he really wanted to live on the on his main line, which was the New York New Haven line. And you know, this was in the 19 early 1940s. And there was talk that the rail station was going to be reopened because it had been closed a couple years before. Um, and he hoped against hope that would happen. But took he actually won $15,000 in a um, uh, in a horse rat in a horse race, you know, out in, in LA when he was out there um, and carried the cash back home, cash, and walked up and down the streets in Hunts Point um, and saw a for sale sign. And it was an Italian family named the Sacco family. And he was able to convince them to sell the house to that, my big old six foot three black man who happened to be my daddy. And um, they did. And that's why I was born and raised in Hunts Point. So I look at that station every day and I'm like, wow, Pop, thanks. <laughs> you are so awesome. I wonder what you think about this, because that wasn't even in my mind. Um, you know, back before he passed, it did not occur to me that this is something that we do, but his spirit's right there. Majora Carter. Her book is called Reclaiming Your Community. The subtitle, You Don't Have to Move Out of Your Neighborhood to Live in a Better One. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the new year, including interviews with writer Jane Green, ESPN's Jeremy Schapp, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, one half of the great band They Might Be Giants, John Linnell, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.